We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand-addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. I'm Isabeau. And I'm Morgan. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About Christmas time. About cold wings. About being sad. About sisters. About getting inappropriately drunk. About sharing your sexuality with your friends in a way that feels a little a little too much. <laughs> about finding time for that special someone. About fairy porn. <laughs> about the stress of finding the appropriate gift. About never quite actually building a world. <laughs> but mostly it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. In this episode, this is also crucially a podcast about Christmas specials because we are, or holiday specials, or winter solstice specials. Which is a winter holiday. Yeah. <laughs> because we are discussing, you knew it was coming. A Court of Frost and Starlight by Sarah Joanna Moss. Mass, we still can't say. Doesn't matter, honestly. It, it does, but it's 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 a failure I mean, on our part. <laughs> <laughs> the mystery sustains, you know what I mean? I'm just like, she's, she's so much more than her own name now. Yeah, the pronunciation should stay behind the veil. Yeah, much like some of her world building. Ooh. Caddy, mm. little Christmas cat. May I, may I read the back of the book to bring people up to speed? I wish you would. <laughs> oh, well, to bring people up to speed, like what you need to know is there is a massive fairy war. The wall between humans and fairies has fallen. And now in the aftermath of hundreds of thousands of fey people dying, it's solstice. We've we've talked about the three books that preceded this book, and I think something important to note is that they are chonkers. Well, the last one is chonky. They're all thick boys. I know. I guess my my reference points all askew, but this one I said was a short novel, and Isabel corrected me. It is in fact a normal length book. <laughs> It is 240 pages, but it is a, in this universe, a novella, mm -hmm. a holiday special. I'm going to read the back of the book per uh, Jeff Bezos, who personally writes all of these for Amazon.com. Little known fact. It's all he does now. And <laughs> with that simple fact in mind, he earns his billion dollar paycheck. <laughs> Tender addition to the number one New York Times bestselling Court of Thorns and Roses series by Sarah J. Moss, bridging the events of A Court of Wings and Ruin and upcoming books. Now, I, I want to pause here on the little selling point because it says upcoming books. It doesn't it doesn't mean just the Court of Thorns and Roses books, uh, because Sarah J. Moss, I think we'll get into this. I think she's using this slender little tome to do a lot of work as far as stitching together her various series. But here's what happens in the actual book. Feyre 
Resand and their friends are still busy rebuilding the night court, <laughs> the vastly altered world beyond, recovering from the war that changed everything. Whoa, that's a long sentence. Farah, Resand, and their friends are still busy rebuilding the night court and the vastly altered world beyond, recovering from the war that changed everything. But winter solstice is finally approaching, and with it, the joy of a hard-earned reprieve. Yet even the festive atmosphere can't keep the shadows of the past from looming. As Feyre navigates her first winter solstice as High Lady, her concern for those dearest to her deepens. They have more wounds than she anticipated, scars that will have a far-reaching impact on the future of the court. Bridging the events of A Court of Wings and Ruin with later books in the series— a Court of Frost and Starlight explores the far-reaching effects of a devastating war and the fierce love between friends. So a slightly different interpretation. This one says in the series at the end of this book description, but up there at the top it just says upcoming books. What's she got up her sleeve? Jeff Bezos doesn't know. Jeff Bezos is a little confused. Uh, Jeff Bezos, like me, is uh, hoping that there are lots of Easter eggs to tie the books in together. Isabeau, I, I do think uh, we should tell readers what we've been up to in our private moments beyond the microphone between us and Sarah J. Moss because we've been quietly toiling for our own pleasure in this world. We have. Uh, I think it will come as no surprise to listeners that you and I have indeed embarked on the never-ending march through Mordor <laughs> that is this series. It's impossible to stop or put down. And I think it's also true, and you know, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I now own various Akutar mediums, right? So I listen to all of them on Audible and just their like original form, not their like multicast form. And then I saw in a bookstore that they were having a sale. So then I bought the Frost and Starlight in it's like physical medium and then i also got the doorstop that is the court of silver silver flames yeah so that one's next to my bed because not only did i read it for funsies but i am reading it again as a way of just like putting myself to sleep <laughs> it's like a comfort read it is. I so I I too I only consume this book in one format, and that is the cinematic audiobook, which I cannot recommend against enough. I I saw the the version came out for Silver Flames, and if I buy, somehow they put Silver Flames in two parts, but Wings and Ruin is in three. Silver Flames is also longer, so that's why Morgan's being incredulous, listeners. If you haven't picked up these books or seen them, Silver Flames is bigger than the size of a child's head. Sometimes I set it next to my Dostoevsky collection just for purposes of, I don't want to say shaming myself, <laughs> but shaming Fyodor Dostoevsky for sure. For sure. Who is paid by the word. And listen, like Sarah J. Moss isn't paid by the word. She does this for the sheer joy and commerciality of this text. A hundred percent. She does it for us. She does it okay, for so us. So I've read this. So in addition to going out of my way to Barnes & Noble to buy the special edition of Silver Flames because tracking down the exclusive chapters has become too <laughs> overwhelming for me. I will now just buy the books with the special chapters. It's a lot. It's a lot to say out loud. Um, I'm suddenly hyper aware of I am a fan, and I, here's the thing, being a fan of anything is inherently uncool. Maybe not uncool. Maybe not uncool. I've got to stop, but it's a little uncool. Like, you have zero chill when you're a fan. Yes. I think that's it. It's not that you're uncool, it's that you have zero chill. Perfect distinction. Yeah. I have zero chill, and I want to be a person with a thousand percent chill as all people with undiagnosed anxiety <laughs> disorders do but I, <laughs> but 
it's hard for me to talk about this. So this time last year, I audiobook, I listened to the first two books of, in the Glass Throne series, mm. which was her first series. And I enjoyed them. They weren't horny enough. Mm. And then I got the Crescent City, the two books in the Crescent City series. Um, I'm about halfway through the second one, which is Silver Flames Link. Mm as is the first one, which is, suffice to say, I know, you know, something's coming at the end of the second Crescent City book that will tie it very directly to A Court of Thorns and Roses. But there's a lot in those books already that is explicitly evocative. And people seem to be looking for, like, crumbs, but she's leaving whole pies <laughs> to give you, to point you in the direction of how she wants you to think. And that for me is one of revisiting A Court of Frost and Starlight with that in mind has really made me think about like what I expected Mm -hmm. from a Christmas special and what this one is actually doing. Sure. Because providing a new quality text for the fans is not what this book is. And like to be fair... (laughs) I'm not sure that that's what Christmas specials are for, right? Like quality new material for the fans. I think you can leave quality and material at the door and just say for the fans, right? Like <laughs> like it is Christmas specials in my experience are pure fan service, right? And like I'm so glad that you brought this up because like one of the things that reading it the second time and not listening to it but actually reading it really brought up for me is like the um in England they do a Christmas special for like really popular shows so like there's the Downton Abbey Christmas special there's like the All Creatures Great and Swarm many Doctor Who and they all come out on Boxing Day so like part of what you do Mm -hmm. is like you rest and hang out with your family and then you watch BBC and none of those episodes like they have glancing like continuity with the thing that has happened all season. Oftentimes they don't even do that. Oftentimes they can feel like one-offs. Yeah, they're like standalone bottle episodes. Right. But I think it's also important to remember in this discussion, George Lucas made a Star Wars Christmas special. He sure did. Where Chewbacca is trying to get home for Christmas. For a long time it was super rare, mm-hmm. but it turns out it's actually just owned on VHS by every bar in Chicago. Um, so that's where it's been this whole time. In case you were wondering. <laughs> so I've seen it a few times. And I think the Chewbacca Christmas special, like there are some really good, like I think the IT crowd always did a good Christmas Boxing Day special. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the downtown app downtown abbey ones are they good no i mean they're like they're they are what they are i think like all creatures great and small did a better job this past season with their so like because they're they run in england before they run here so like i'm not talking about like the newest season i'm talking about last year and they like they continued forward right so like Hitler has, like, marched in Czechoslovakia. England is going to be embroiled in war. And they don't ignore that fact in the Christmas special where time has indeed marched forward. So, like, that season ends, like, with, like, the Czech Republic being invaded. And then, like, December happens. And, like, in other Christmas specials I've seen, they've just, like, ignored the the fact that, like, they end in September and, like, pick up in December. But this time they were like, no, the, the war is continuing to go forward and it's making us all sad and scared. Okay. That's interesting. The continuity is interesting. Yeah, but, like, also I would say remarkable in the fact that, like, it's worth remarking on that most Christmas specials of my experience don't care that, like... Time has either marched forward or like no. <laughs> everything everything yields for the winter solstice. Such a good way to phrase it, right? It's, it's like it's like a snow globe. It is both inside and outside of time. England had that treaty that one time during World War One where everything stopped and they just played football in the snow or mm-hmm. whatever and they were like, yeah, this is how television is work. <laughs> They're like every <laughs> this is how narrative TV will everything be. Everything that we learned in the 1914-1915 Christmas armistice. Yeah, and they never move forward from that. 
I think the Star Wars Christmas special is something that's like deeply maligned. It is. But I, I actually think, you know, I would also say Frost and Starlight in the community of which we are two mere visitors. Um, no, we're absolutely not. We are fully entrenched. But in the fan community of Court of Thorn and Roses, this is largely considered everyone's least favorite book. But I will say, and I, I'm, I'm talking about the Star Wars special mm-hmm. now, and I think this will help us to reflect more generously. Mm. The Star Wars Christmas special is much maligned, but it operates as an independent narrative feature. It was made for television in an era when television was not well-funded. Mm-hmm. And Star Wars is programming for children. And <laughs> this is the thing I always scream about with Star Wars is that they have now made stuff for the grown-ups at long last. And or. But m- most of it, yeah. But most of it has always been for children. Mm-hmm. And if you're a child, Chewbacca's adventures getting home to a bunch of other Chewbacca's, I can't think of like a better it's the it's the Ewoks celebrating. Yeah, nub. But a whole Christmas special with Christmas. Babies babies would love that. Babies do love that, right? That's why they're like you've never heard of potentially never heard of Caravan of Courage, which is an entire Ewok special that was also made for TV after the events. Was it the cartoon? No, one? it's live action. Warwick Davis continues his role as Wicket, the <laughs> <laughs> the famous Ewok. Um, there's a little girl and her brother. They're shipwrecked on Endor. It's like a whole thing. I- I'm not going to get into it. You sh- you can watch it. But what I'm saying is like also something to keep in mind about the Star Wars much maligned Christmas special is that in 1977, when Star Wars came out, it wasn't expected to be the hit that it was. And they didn't make another movie until 1980, right? And so the, like, they're like, how do you keep like hype going how do you like keep people excited how do you like reuse material that you're not going to like you don't want to forecast too much of what you're doing in the new one but you want to keep that like verve and fire alive while you're working I don't know on a book that's larger than a child's head like she seems to pump these out pretty quickly but like I mean a thousand pages doesn't write itself in six weeks and like a thousand book pages (laughs) by the way Right. So like, I think there's also something here about like, going back to the thesis of quality fan material. It's like part of this is like fans are clamoring for more material. Yeah, fans are 100% clamoring for more material. And she doesn't have a big Instagram presence. And I think that's because she's got a big dick. So she doesn't have to. She doesn't have to play that game. And I wouldn't if I and I don't. I should. But I think like, but she does lots of interviews and she does her newsletter still. And like, she's, she's very active on her other like more controlled pieces of outreach. I think what we're talking about here is that Christmas specials for all of their hemming and hawing about the true meaning of winter solstice being family and togetherness are on our at their core, a commercial promotional enterprise. Yes. That is obligatory more than celebratory. And in that way, it is uh, the holiday spirit down to its core. Especially the American version. Especially the, well, no, I think the English version is equally so. Because we all are uh, shackled under late capital. Speaking of, one of the things about this story, if I could just launch into my weirdest part. I would love that. This story is clearly not her best work. And there are points of distraction, especially when you're listening to the cinematic audiobook. And one of those is the changing of perspective. We go back and forth quite frequently between Farah and Rhysand's perspective. In the preceding books, we very sparingly get Rhysand's perspective. We're pretty diligently in Farah's. And we are always in first person. We are always in first person when we're in Farah, and we are almost exclusively in first person when we're in Rhysand in the other books. This text is a departure from that. 
goes into third person with Cassian and Nesta, who are the subjects of the future books in the series, or the future book in the series. That's pretty distracting, I think. Mm -hmm. But more than that is what this series is doing with time. And I think, so what I mean by that is the book will reference events, not just that happened in previous books, but events that never happened on page. And we'll give them as much memory and description as things that happened on page. For instance, we regularly revisit the murder of Highburn. But we also get this super detailed description in first person of more remembering punishment by her family where she was tortured, physically tortured, um, and left for dead in the autumn court. We get so we get that in this text, which had been described to us before, but it was in dialogue. And so like that was like a remove where here it's like it's just it's laid out in a memory. Yeah, it's very deliberate. The levels of it. And then it's also further removed because Moore is remembering standing in the Hewn City with her family and then remembering in the memory you know, and I think time is an interesting concept, especially around the end of the year when we become, I think, more sentimental, but also I become more weary of the future. Mm. Other people have different feelings, but we are all thinking about, like, I think time and change. Generously, I would say that that's part of it. But I think more than that is this text is just trying to put as many pieces on the board as possible. To do that, it really bends over backwards and it's terribly distracting. I agree. And in fact, and so like that's like, I think, um, a more cogent and uh, nice critique of how time gets like uh, muddled in its own layers. One of the things that annoyed me most would be like Reese and Cassian and Az are like going off and doing something and then Feyre's chapter starts like three hours before the chapter that we just had. And I'm like, but I was at like basically what's essentially lunchtime and now I'm going back to breakfast. Like I like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like continue the day forward. Like we're not like, and so why? Because like, then it's like time reset. And so it's like, I had the full breakfast. Like Rhysand got up before dawn and he doesn't have any time. And he left the cold bed and his beautiful mate behind. And then, like, you know, next chapter, after hours of, you know, content, I wake up and, like, Fair is like, the bed was cold where Reese left. And I'm like, <laughs> it's like, I fucking know he already left. Any workshop you would bring this to, any MFA workshop would have just been like, don't waste my time with this. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you cannot structure, you cannot cre- craft. This is a poor. <laughs> It's a shambles. <laughs> to be like completely honest, like it's a shambles. Like you should be able to pull things through if you're going to be willing to like go into a memory during a memory, remembering, remembering while you're remembering. Like <laughs> you should be able to stretch how people are understanding and thinking about one another. Or like Reset came home and was like, we got a big problem. And then like Cassie, and you know, like there are better ways of doing this that keeps the plot moving forward. And furthermore, we're in genre fiction. It should all be plot. And like distending your plot, smearing it around time is not helpful. Also, there's like precious little plot in this, right? Thank you. <laughs> There's almost none. Like the plot is solstice. So like the plot is Christmas special. And like three days over the solstice season. Which also happens to be Feyre's birthday. Oh, thank you for pointing that out. Capricorn. Um, she's 21. <laughs> it's really important. She's 21. Less than a year since she was snapped up by Resand. Less than a year has gone Less by. Less than a year has gone by since she almost married Tamlin. Yeah, I um there's a lot to unpack there that I just don't like feel like going into. Um but like the fact that there's so fucking little plot, right? Like so this book entirely operates on memory and this book entirely operates on feeling, mostly bad feeling, which is interesting. And so like in many ways it it 
not only does it feel like fan service, but it feels like fan fiction, right? Like this mm. is what Harry, Ron, and Hermione are doing the first Christmas after Hogwarts is destroyed, right? Where it's like, we're just going to spend a lot of time talking about and processing trauma with our favorite characters. And that's all this book wants to do. Like nobody is doing anything. To say nothing of the fact that the majority of action in the moment on the page is shopping. That's <laughs> so true. <laughs> There's so much shopping in this book. Constant shopping. I love shopping. I'm a little tuckered out by the time we get to a weaver and oh she my has God. created Bant Bantam Black in cloth form, which is like a it's a cloth so dark that it absorbs light. Farrah says her finger disappears when she points to it. She calls, the the weaver says that it was a personal challenge to her after her husband died in the war. The book goes through pains to then have her understand the look in Farrah's eye and explain that her husband wasn't drafted. He volunteered because Resand refused to draft people into this war. And he volunteered and he died in actually Adriata. So like it goes through all this work to like alleviate Resand and Feyre of any culpability or like dampen the culpability of uh, their choices in the deaths of citizens, everyday citizens. Uh, she calls, what does she call the cloth? Does she call it death? No. So she calls it like void and hope. Oh, void. Yeah. And then so that's there's the an color. Opalescent, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there's an opalescent color that she makes in another thread and um, another woven thread, I guess, that is kind of opalescent. And she calls that hope. And she has, they're shopping and they're constantly revisiting all of the awful things that happened. Reese, they go to the same jewelry store three times to talk about how bad they feel about what happened to Amarin. They go to this weaver store, and then later on, Cassian goes to a grocery store run by a character who will be important later on in Silver Flames. He goes to her store and then gets like all of the trauma of what happened with the Illyrian people and why they're now feeling like revolution is brewing. And it's like using shopping as a, <laughs> it feels, I mean, I guess it works. I mean, does it though? Like, so this is actually, you're we are like complaining about it. <laughs> sure. You're coming to my, my weirdest part, right? So like she says, um, so this is the tapestry scene. In the 300 years we were wed, we never had the chance to have children. I don't even have a piece of him in that way. He's gone and I'm not. Void was born of that feeling. I didn't know what to say as her world's words settled in and she continued working because she's also weaving while they're having this conversation and shopping. So like they're talking, uh, her loss, her undending sorrow, she'd created something from it, something extraordinary. I couldn't take that away from her, even if she asked me to. Elaine, the silver thread, what is that called? The weaver paused. Noah attempted a smile. I call it hope. My throat became unbearably tight, my eyes stinging enough that I had to turn away to walk back toward that extraordinary tapestry. The weaver explained, I made it after I mastered void. I stared and stared at the black fabric that was like peering into a pit of hell, and then stared at the iridescent living silver thread that cut through it, bright despite the darkness that devoured all other light and color. It could have been me, and Reese had very nearly gone oh, that gosh. way. <laughs> They did. They were like in the void, but they are the uh, upper class of this text, so they survived. And this holiday tomorrow, this chance to celebrate being together and living. People died for Christmas. <laughs> is, the, is the conceit of this text. We must celebrate Christmas because people died to celebrate Christmas, which... That's not not a common conceit, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, like, that's the thing that, like, I read that and I laughed out loud. I think I listened to it and I probably laughed out loud the first time because it's so saccharine. It's, like, it's repetitious in a way that's, like, really hard to take. And yeah. it's, like, it feels like the parts of Christmas specials. And I'm, and I'm like, 
people who know me know I fucking love Christmas. Like it's Christmas exploded in my living room. I listen to Christmas music from the 25th, whatever. I'm not a hater. And so like this comes from a space of like, even for me, this was a lot. And the experience of this was like when I, when I, when I gorge myself too fully on too many Christmas movies all at once, right? Like I watch Nicolas's Cage, The Family Man, and then I watch White Christmas, and then I watch, and I, I always try to end with It's a Wonderful Life closest to the holiday, because that's the one that I like the most, but it's also the most saccharine. Like it is the most itself. And in fact, for a long time, they called Frank Capra movies Capricorn, um, as like a pejorative because there's nothing to him. But like, this feels like that. This feels like George Bailey's whole, like everybody starts praying for him at the end. You know, they're like, our, at the beginning, our dear friend George is in trouble. Be with him tonight. Like, and then we have and to go And it goes through. to the stars and it's the angels glowing and there's the planet spinning. Right. And then we see like how much of an impact George's had on this town and the people in it. And the worst thing that can happen to Mary is that she becomes a librarian spinster. Um, and I think like one of the things like it's like it like that part was like that for me, where it's like it feels deeply familiar, but reading it in this way makes the saccharine too sweet. Like it hurts my teeth. And I think like the fact that it is so commercial and like that it's trying to bridge so many bridge so many gaps and put so many pieces on the page obscures the fact that like this book is interested in what a family or what a chosen family does in the wake of trauma and that like Christmas and the end of the year is often a time to really take stock for whatever reason like things come up partly because of the ritual, partly because we're together, because under capital, these are the only days that people really have off from their jobs. And so like, <laughs> there's all of that pieces to it. And so in so many ways, it felt so deeply familiar, right? Like the fact that like Reese and Feyre are constantly trying to just like find time to be together between the shopping and finding the perfect gift and knowing that there isn't a perfect gift and that these creatures have also been giving each other gifts for like a thousand Centuries. years <laughs> which feels like a blown up version of like i've known you forever i know you don't need anything what can i i still want to mark the occasion like i feel like that's a conversation my sister and i had this year and we're not a thousand years old and so like the turns here are so deeply familiar to me that it also refracted like the absurdity to me in a way that I had never truly experienced in a Christmas special because it's so earnest, but in its earnest, it like makes the turn and like Hallmark Christmas movies don't do that on purpose. Like it's easy to make fun of them because they're just like constantly churning in their saccharine. Like there's no awareness of it, but this book is sometimes aware of itself and sometimes not. And so like, that's a moment yeah, an example of when it's self-aware. Maybe self-aware isn't the right term, but like leans away from the saccharine in a way that feels more authentic and less saccharine. So like Nesta is grieving in a different way than everybody else. She's decided to like isolate. She's gambling, fucking, and drinking. And drinking. And she's living in like what is charitably called a, a hovel yeah. <laughs> a slum they call it a slum they do call it a slum as if Valaris has slums anyway and Nesta's really fucked up not only because like her father was murdered in front of her she almost died at the hands of the king of Hybern, but also critically and I think this book doesn't make enough of it she and Elaine were made into high fey immortal beings against their will it's simmering in the subconscious of this text but it's not like forward very much and and through that their their worldviews were upended because they had had a very like a uh, specific set of mythologies that were meant to protect them from the worst version of fey and then they're brought into this they become fey themselves against their will and then they're also introduced to like oh everything north of the wall is better they have working toilets rather than outhouses <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And like, imagine having just like your worldview torn asunder like that. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are actually going through that 
all the time since COVID. It's been never ending. And it's very relatable. Incredibly relatable. And it works as subtext maybe because of that fact that we are living it more so than the fact that the book is providing that subtext. That's a good point. And so like our point of comparison, like if you remember the oversaturated saccharine thing that we just described about the tapestry scene here, Nesta has been coerced into coming to Christmas or it's solstice. There's like a fine, she like does it begrudgingly. It's awful. She doesn't really talk to anybody. And then she leaves and Favor gives her money for rent. And there's like a weird sort of like money thing. And then she has this fight with Cassian and he, she basically makes him leave like go on get out here (laughs) and he like follows her but like at a distance and so then she's alone in her apartment um there's anger occasionally sharp hot anger that sliced her but most of the time it was silence droning ringing silence she hadn't felt anything in months uh she blinked and winter had fallen blinked and her body had turned too thin as hollow as she felt um to be fair, it has been it's been like six months. Yeah, it's been six months. Um, still, the silence <laughs> so, raged and echoed around her. Still, she felt nothing. It's just like the sparseness of the language. I think makes this really relatable, and also like what a way to like put trauma then in relation to like the way other people are dealing with it. And it's just like that's that's a successful version of events. Like there's a there's a fight. Then, like, there's a separation, and then there's, like, an internality that is sparse but deep. And delivers on that subtext. Like, I stand corrected. Like, delivers on that. And then that subtext is further elucidated. Nesta is further understood by Silver Flames. Putting the- so that's a very successful piece put on the board by this book, would you say? I would, absolutely. And I think it stands in contrast to the parts that feel much less successful. I want to talk about, I found it, I find the tapestry scene and It's a Wonderful Life to be super generative. It's a Wonderful Life is is my favorite Christmas movie as well. And this year I watched it again and I was struck by a couple of new things. I always am. Um, I'm not going to argue about Frank Capra being corny. I think Frank Capra is that successful earnestness that you always try to convince me is happening other places. For me, it's it's Capra all the way through. I think that's true. And I think Capra, he starts with this scene, right? We talked about the overview of the prayers and the snowy scenes of the homes where these prayers are going out from. And then we go all the way, we pull all the way back to how small planet Earth is and uh Joseph and Clarence are talking and they're blinking stars in the galaxy and you know Capra and Jimmy Stewart had actually just come back from World War II when they made that movie and they were both fighting and battling and there's actual footage from World War II in the film and the film is also reflecting on wartime absolutely it came out in 46 and it so it does this thing. I think the way it lands is whimsical because then we pan right into, you know, this uh, idyllic winter scene from the 1900s of the boys sledding on and on the ice and then making a chain gang to save um, their little brother, Harry. And then, it, but then it slowly kind of peters off from this childhood idolism. Um, to this very difficult scene where the pharmacist accidentally fills the wrong pills because he's been drinking because he finds out his child died. And it's up to our hero, George, to, as a young boy, to make a hard choice on his own. And he wants to get his father's input, but then he has this scene of his father being not made small, but I think his father is put to scale as a single man against Potter, the villain. And so he realizes he has to make his own call. So he, he endures a beating and weeps and, 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 and I think like it really brings things back. And for me, thinking about how that tapestry scene is overly Saturn for you, 
I would say that tapestry scene is one of the more successful sites of discussing trauma. But I think it's because the actor who portrays the weaver in that scene is doing some of the best work in the dramatic telling and I think really grounds it. And I think what the words on the page are missing is that grounding. That makes sense. And also I think that like that's also one of the weird things about this text in general where it's like the way that I receive it matters so much into like how like because I wonder too like if I was just reading the scene with Mr. Gower and because like the the beating of George is awful because he like beats him on his like bad ear and like the ear, reason bleed, his ear bleed. bleeds yeah and he's and Mr. Gower is really upset because the kids at this house are really sick and they need this medicine and then he's like it's poison Mr. Gower I know you were sad and I know you made a mistake and you didn't do it on purpose and gives him this huge grace, not only for the mistake, but for the anger he feels. Oh my god, I'm getting I'm getting choked up just talking about that scene. Right. And then Mr. Gower hugs him and like says, like, you're such a good boy. And like there's that moment too where he's like, you know, when they're hugging, and he's just like, I know you didn't mean to do it, Mr. Gower. I won't tell anybody. And he never does. <laughs> I love that scene <laughs> so much. Gower, and then Mr. Gower gives him the big to big suitcase. It's lovely. Um, I love It's a Wonderful Life. And I think one of the... Oh, my God. (laughs) And that's such a great opener. And, like, I think actually quite typical of Frank Capra, who, like, really knows how to, like, pull something like that out of such a simple scene. Like, right? It's just, like, it's just, like, one event that then snowballs and you're watching it through the eyes of a kid who has to make, like, who's making that first foray then into, like, adulthood and, like... It's it's really moving. And I think there are a couple of scenes in this that like attempt that. And I think I'm also really sensitive to it at this moment. I think you're right. We're all (laughs) more sensitive this time of year. But I think one of the things about like the scene of Nesta like showing up at the house and like how important it is and like how everyone tries to like relate around her and like give her space. And like there's even a moment where she, uh, Feyre, says down the bond to Reese she's like will you please start talking just so that like this awkwardness can be released and like you know I think it I think it's Amron's lover who starts doing an overly detailed description of celebrations at the summer court Elaine takes a shot to deal with Nesta being there yeah And I think, like, it's in those, like, tense family moments that this book really shines for me, where it's, like, this text understands that, like, the season is quite fraught. And it's not just, you know, fraught for these folks because of what they've endured. It's also, like, the endurance before the war and how they're all now re-relating to one another. And I think, like, that captures a piece of the season that I think It's a Wonderful Life really captures in a way that, like, White Christmas doesn't. Or it's like, Christmas doesn't necessarily, or the winter season doesn't always feel good, but the f- other feelings that come with it are just as important. And it's interesting. I also will say, I think one of the things about that scene with Mr. Gower is the actor who plays young George is so naturalistic. And all of the performances are really, for their time, very natural. I mean, it's James Stewart being what he would become known for. And so these these silly, elaborate things happen, like the Bert and Ernie, the cab driver and cop, creating a fake honeymoon in this broke-down mansion for them. Everyone is is performing it straight, even though they have these, like, idyllic they're living in an idyllic asbestos snow globe and there's these insane hollyhocks growing everywhere right like it's they're in this set this overly idealized setting one of the things that i found very moving about the movie on this watch and it it, it does relate to frost and starlight so stay with me. i'm 100 with you george never leaves his hometown from the moment his future wife makes that wish, which is never revealed, but absolutely must be, <laughs> don't let George Bailey ever leave this town, which makes her a bit of a villain. 
or she does a villainous thing, but he, because he has big dreams, he wants to have a big life. He says that explicitly. He has those ambitions. But instead, he stays in this town. I think there are so few pieces of media. He doesn't even leave for the war. He just does these drives for the war effort, right? He can't leave for the war because he's 4F, because of his ear. But he still keeps keeps the home fires burning in all senses of the word. He tries to be, and not intentionally a hero, but he tries to be, do what's right for his mm -hmm. community. And it is so rare to find media nowadays where the main character doesn't end up going to LA or mm -hmm. becoming a star or isn't the most important person. I mean, he gets cash at the end, but that's so he can pay off all the problems he's accrued in his life like he's gonna break even at the end of the movie and that's why it's so impactful when his brother says uh to my brother george bailey the richest man in town there's so few stories about the average person and i think what is kind of a failure of frost and starlight and a failure of our media in general especially that you and i consumed growing up is that there isn't a lot of that uh, what would be qualified as a as a heroic or a successful person in a in a small world? Mm -hmm. Everything around Frost and Starlight, everything around Feyre and Resand is so big. Yeah, the stakes are so high, and they're so loved, and they fuck so good, <laughs> and they like have the prettiest dresses, and they're buying solid diamond bangles. You know, like mm -hmm. it's over the top, and I think. Nesta is 100% the villain of this story. Yes. Her subtlety and her struggle is so relatable and so down understandable, mm -hmm. I think, not just to us, but surely to other readers, that I think it grounds the novel and also, for me, served as a bellwether, like, okay, I'm going to buy the special edition of Silver Flames. Because you are seeing like her as an interesting, whole, textured character. And I want to spend an enormous amount of time with her in this new book. And so that is a marketing effort. But I also think it's it Nesta kind of saves the book. I think that's true. As the villain, which is typical, isn't it? I mean, she also like she humanizes it, right? Like you're right. I mean, in many ways, like, Feyre is a small-town girl who, like, ends up in New York or L.A., which is what the night court is. But I think, like, one of the other really impactful things, and, like, the reason why I brought up It's a Wonderful Life not only is because it's the thing that I've been thinking about because it, it like, like we said, Jimmy Stewart and Frank Capra came back from war, like, World War II ended in May 1945. The, the very first film that they make is It's a Wonderful Life. And I think, like their experience of the war is very present. And I think one of the things that you beautifully said, it's like, George is a hero and he never leaves. And that's like, but like, that's part of George's personal tragedy. And that's the root of it. He never lets go of wanting to leave. Right. He wants to. And that's why it's hard for him to see how much of an impact he's had on the town itself. And I think that's like what's missing in all of the Hallmark movies, which are really about like big city girl comes back home and learns like, quote unquote, good values or whatever. It's like all of the people are like they they're like they already know how valuable like their Christmas tree farm salesman is. Like they're all really appreciative. It's like George isn't and he's it's like he's restless. He's losing sight. And but he never really had clarity on what he meant to the town because his dreams were always 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 put on the shelf for others. And that that's what creates this blindness for him and I think like one of the things that this book and like that's such a subtle thing right like that you really can't see yourself especially if like your wants have been denied and like that's the tragedy of George and so he's like I'd be better off if I just died and like you know here's the policy I also want to indicate like his part of the reason he loses sight part of the reason he kind of ends up emotionally in over his head is because he never stops struggling like it never gets easy for him right it never gets easy for the people around him i'm thinking about martini and his bar and how he's trying to like you see him even though he has this house in the new development you see him working on christmas eve working hard on christmas eve 
people all around him are struggling except for the villain. Whereas I think the reverse is true in Frost and Starlight. Yes. <laughs> and like there's this like this like insane like we have to be grateful and like we have to live in this moment and like it's like all these other people got super fucked, but like you and me were alive and like we need to feel it. And I'm like We need to take it easy and be able to take it easy. And it's constantly saying like Elaine, stop feeling bad about not making dinner. Like, you deserve to not make dinner. You cut off a dude's head. Yeah. It's like, maybe Elaine needs to make dinner to keep busy for a little bit. Like, maybe that's what she needs to do. And I think, too, like... I didn't expect this to become a fan cast about It's a Wonderful Life, but, like, one of the things that I love... (laughs) I mean, like, I don't think we're blowing anybody's mind by saying It's a Wonderful Life is a better piece of art for Christmas. <laughs> sure, we're not. It's ideologically, the ideology of it is, I think, what frustrates me. Yeah, and I think that's right, where it's like, this is all the parts of Christmas that are, like, consumerist, capitalist, and it, like, the bow on it is that, like, this is found family, and they all really care about each other, and look at them pr- trying to process their trauma, and it's like, that's the surface level stuff. Self-care. Self-care as a way out of trauma is like, but there's also other stuff that needs to happen in addition to the self-care, in addition to the processing. And like, you should be processing with an adult who loves you and also maybe is trained and like maybe an objective outsider. Like, there's a lot maybe here. Maybe shouldn't be running the art therapy program oh for fairy children. Right? Just like, I think that like, you need a little more distance, Feyre. And like, maybe keep painting by yourself before you include minors. Yeah, or maybe just be someone <laughs> who is qualified to do it right is trained in like fairy mentality like the whole thing but there's this scene that i love too because it's like george and nesta and like not that they're like a perfect allegory because they're not but i think like nesta's anger and george's anger especially when clarence is like showing him like the like the ghost of christmas future scene where you know he sees Harry's tombstone and Harry died underneath the ice that first winter and he goes this is a lie Harry went to war Harry saved those boys and then Clarence says all those boys died because you weren't there to save Harry and every time like the thing that I take away from that is because I have like big brother mythology which is like something I need to work on but like the fact that like he gave Harry his college fund. Harry gets to leave and do the big, important plastic business. And, like, George is never resentful of Harry's stuff or how easy he's made Harry's life. He's never angry about any of that. He's just, like, relentlessly proud of his baby brother, Harry, which is just, like, ugh, oh, my God, love it. But I love how angry he gets in that moment where he's like, no, my baby brother fucking did this shit. And, like, that's also where I see, like, Nest is like, I'm not fucking pretending that anything is okay. And they're like, it's solstice. Come to your presence. It'll be fun. And it's like, everyone is drinking to excess. Everyone is, like, passing out in ways that don't feel good. Um, and no one's talking about what's happened. Uh, I'm going to peace out of that because that feels, like, not what I need. That feels ugly. And they and the book is kind of insistent on the ugliness of what Nesta is doing. Mm-hmm. And that like it's a very like hurt people hurt people kind of thing as opposed to being like, hey, I think she's got some good points. Yeah. Like maybe your inauthenticity is like, I don't know, offensive. And I also think about her, her paramour, Cassian, who is like, I need to stay here in the Illyrian community throughout the holidays i need to keep working because there's a there's dissent brewing and reese is like no i want you home for the holidays and cassian's like well i guess i gotta and it's like one of those things where it's like i personally see a lot of value (laughs) in cassian staying there and like you know showing a strong face or whatever and, like, Nesta kind of falling apart at the fact that she has this life of leisure, whereas, like, Feyre is doing the classic rich lady thing where she becomes a volunteer and gets a hobby. And is like, the book is obsessed with this idea of hiring secretaries. But what are the secretaries going to allow her to do? Like, less, like, 
leisure, you know? Yeah, so that she has more time to fuck. Yeah, and it's just, yes, the time to fuck is such a big deal in this book. There is an infamous memory scene where Reese and uh, (laughs) and Feyre have sex while Reese is flying over the city. And it describes him, like, dropping trow. So, like, if you can picture him, like, flying with his pants around his ankles. <laughs> and fucking. <laughs> and and going to pound town. But he put, a, he put a magic veil over them or whatever. So, so no one could see. Ch- so the children couldn't see. Some poor guy. That's not bird poop on your head, my friend. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. It's, like, ridiculous, you know. And they're like, whoa, we're so busy we have to have sex in the sky i just and that's why we need secretaries i just like it it really belies a certain ideological problem and also like if you didn't previously know that this author comes from a highly moneyed background this book would for sure tip you off because it's for sure doing that like benevolent wealth thing and I and I think you're right. Like so much of this book isn't just like the conception and delivery of it feels like a capitalist Christmas project. The themes within feel like a capitalist pr- Christmas project, but it also feels very particular to our 21st century time, where these important ideas of like uh, preserve self preservation so that you can continue preserving others in the form of self care. This idea of is now like self-care at the cost of collectivism. Yes. Is prevalent within this text. Um, the idea of like leisure being this incredibly crucial, you know, there are things that are that should come before rest, I think. And I think those things happen in this book, but they're not treated with that kind of seriousness, you know? Mm-hmm. They're seen as less important than getting drunk at Christmas. Getting drunk at Christmas can be very important to people. I mean, I'm not saying like, you've got to be laboring this whole time, but it does, it's a work of fiction and a work of fantasy. And therefore it speaks to, in these very kind of Baroque ways, our our current ideology, which is the whole point of the podcast, but. Yeah, I think (laughs) nailed it. What was your sexiest part? (laughs) I'm so glad that you asked. Uh So when... Feyre and Reese finally get to fucking. Two sex scenes in the book that aren't a memory of flying. Right, that aren't a memory of flying or a memory of like when they were first mated in the cabin or whatever. I very much liked he winnows them to said cabin and he's like, you said that you wanted a wall. How hard do you want it? And then they like start having sex against the wall And then she's watching him penetrate her and is, like, very turned on by it. And then he's like, do you want to see what I see? And then, like, invites her perspective into his perspective. So then, like, it's essentially a mirror, but, like, it's through his eyes. So then she can hear his commentary while she's seeing what he's seeing as he fucks her. (laughs) It's like, holy shit. And it's, it's very effective. I, that's also mine. It's very effective. <laughs> it's very good. And I think like for a sex scene, it also, I appreciate it because it's cleverly using like the particularities of their relationship, of this text, of this series. But I also really like when she's in Reese's perspective, it's not, at one point right before this happens, she says like, he treats me like worshipfully, but she says something hokey that I'm sure sounded poetic at the time. When she actually goes into his perspective, those kind of big ideas kind of go away. And there seems to be a real appreciation for who she is and how she feels and, like, what it means to him to be able to share that intimacy with her. So it's not, like, dirty talk. It's not, like... No, he's, like, you're so strong. You're so beautiful. Like, what we have together. It's, like, it's, like, better than that. And I, I think, like, one of the things that I enjoyed about it is that it felt, like, very intimate like it felt like a of a sex scene that was centering intimacy and another time when this book narrowed its aperture and was like way more successful yeah it's lovely and it's like it's a surround sound experience like it's in all of the physical as well as mental orifices it's excellent there's a real like failure of imagination in a lot of this book like for instance they've lived for centuries why are they still giving each other gifts 
Great question. And so there are like these failures of imagination, but I think there is where this text is is expansive and is creative. And it just happens to be a sex scene and is empathetic. Just happens to be a sex scene. Yeah. And so that was also my sexiest part. So, womance or a nomance? I'm going to say this is a nomance. I would say, I would say almost reading this book would make Silver Flames less enjoyable. And I'm going to quickly skip ahead 15 seconds um, because I am going to share a spoiler. I forgot how explicit this book was that Cassian and Nesta are mates. And that made reading Silver Flames kind of enjoyable because I hate the mate stuff. It made it more pleasurable for me. Okay, spoiler over. (laughs) I would say don't read this book. Yeah, I think you can absolutely read the rest of the series without it. I think all of the problems that we've elucidated are important ones that create stumbling blocks to enjoying this. The other thing is, like, it's just not as good as the others. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. But it's just as expensive. So, like, you don't need it. It doesn't add anything in terms of character development. Like, you can just skip this one. Um, And if if you're looking for... Those Christmas feels in a way that is, you know, stronger and more nuanced. Go ahead and watch It's a Wonderful Life. I will say, I think this text really demonstrates what I'm going to call the saltwater tank problem. Mm, Can you say more? (laughs) Yeah. So if you get into the hobby of saltwater tanks, they actually recommend you get the biggest tank you can afford as a beginner because... The larger the environment, the more capable it is of kind of balancing itself out. Mm. And the smaller it gets, the more it becomes like a microchip, you know? Mm -hmm. It's concentrated. Yeah. The more concentrated it is, the more difficult it is to kind of self-regulate and eventually get to a state where it's um, safe and comfortable for the living creatures within it. And I think Sarah J. Moss, her writing which we clearly deeply enjoy and appreciate and want more of. And I have a whole plan for the TV adaptation if she would just put me in. She has that saltwater tank problem where the bigger her book gets, to me, the better it is. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And the smaller, more concentrated it is, all the problems, mm-hmm. all the ideology, all of the slippages, all of the saturnness, relying on sloppy tools like time traveling via memory, over-reliance on super violent uh, violence to incite angst, all comes to the surface. So would you say it's a romance or a nomance? It's a no-man's for me, which is the first of the series to be a no-man's. I have enjoyed to the utmost all of the other books. Like, I have (laughs) just, I've listened to them multiple times. I've now bought them in material form. I just, like, they're so fun. It's a bag of potato chips. I think they're actually quite complicated. The fandom's crazy because my phone listens to me. I get a bunch of, like, things about, like, your dream cast of the TV show. A bunch of people are casting Henry Cavill as Cassian, which I think is incorrect. Yeah, thank you. So, like, no, I, like, totally enjoy it. This is just not one that I enjoy, and I think, like, it was really helpful for me to have this conversation because I was like, uh, like I don't really know what I don't like about it. And I'm really glad Yeah, me too. That we were able to put like another text that's dealing with like the aftermath of a global war. (laughs) And like to talk about in conversation. uh, Yeah. Like I think that's right. And like this doesn't do it good. And so don't read it and it won't affect how you read the next ones, which you should absolutely read. <laughs> not to not to further embarrass myself with fanish behavior, but I have, you know, people in my life who treat the Lord of the Rings trilogy the same way I treat this series, <laughs> where they like own it in multiple formats and they're always like thinking and trying deeply thinking about it. And they're like, what is Tom Bombadil? And I'm 100% <laughs> sure Tom Bombadil is a nothing burger. He's a delight. He's a treasure. He's silly. He's an outlier. He's fun. But like anything, anything more we say about Tom Bombadil is more about us, right? Yep. Yep, he's the cipher. Also, how this book is for me. Like, I want to talk about 
the like little, the eensiest throwaway mistakes and make them something more. And I, and I mean, like, I'll just say it. Yeah, like I am, there are people, I'm not the only one who is treating Sarah J. Moss's work with the same kind of obsessive care and reverence and think and maybe not reverence but conscientiousness and like just wanting to be in the language as people do with Tolkien like that's what I'm doing here god it's embarrassing why is that embarrassing here's the thing Sarah J Moss set out to write a series with characters and plots Tolkien and this is an important thing that I don't think we talk about enough of he wrote a language and then came up with a plot. You know what I mean? Let's like, yeah, he yeah. wasn't, you know, you know why Tom Bombadil's a one-off? Because Tom Bombadil didn't speak a special language. You know, he's like, yeah. he's a fucking <laughs> he's linguist. He's like, mm, let me invent a whole new language. It's like, there's nothing that deep about fucking Aragorn. And he's hot as hell. Viggo Mortensen, you know, can get it. But like the most complicated character is Boromir. And he dies in the first book. Spoiler alert. And, like, also, The Hobbit was written for children. For children. Bringing it all back. (laughs) And so, like, yeah, you know what? I think get in on the ground floor. Sarah J. Moss is the next Tolkien. Yeah. She at least cares about plot. And she has titty sucking. Yeah. And mind fucking. They fucking the mind meld. Tolkien was way too much of a coward. To put oral sex on page. <laughs> or any kind of romantic intimacy. I think the closest we get to romantic intimacy is I'm your Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your Sam. Oh my gosh. All right. Really love that uh, part. Well, with that, I'm I'm going to recommend that you absolutely loosen your winter solstice stays. But never your winter holiday principles. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at Womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>